My name is Dee, and I am uh, so pleased to confess something to you, and that is that I need a different mic. Oh, there we go. That was my first confession. My second is that certainly one of the greatest joys of my life is having the privilege of being a pastor here at this church with you in community. And I want to thank you for being such a vital part of what brings so much joy into my life. I don't know how you feel about the Christmas season. There are so many things that happen that sometimes it creates a bit of uh, Christmas chaos. Last night, uh, before we turned out the lights, my wife asked me if I had anything going on right after Sunday morning service, because very often there are things that take place right after Sunday morning service, and um, needing to be responsible for those things, she sometimes makes her way home, and then I'll meet her at home, and she was just checking in. And I said, no, to the best of my knowledge, there's nothing happening right after Sunday morning service. What I didn't tell her was that I have a 2 o'clock, a 3 o'clock, a 5 o'clock, and a 6 o'clock, um, a thing that I have to be at. And so she'll be surprised once that hour and a half free time is over that the Christmas chaos continues. I don't know if you've had the joy or the curse, I'm not sure exactly which one to describe it as, of traveling during the holiday season and trying to make your way through... Um, the chaos of Lindbergh Field, it is possible at certain very particular times over the course of the next few weeks that you might show up there and it be nearly empty and you just move right through everything you have to do and wonder why you got there so early. But during this time of year, that's a little unusual. Far more typical, if you've been there, is that you talk somebody into giving you a ride so that you don't have to combat the parking traffic. And when the person drops you off, because there are so many people there, you have to park in the third lane over, come to a stop, navigate other traffic passing you on the left, unload your luggage and work through two lanes of traffic to even get to the curb. If you're flying with Southwest, as we often do, and go into the terminal, it seems like those lines to get to the ticket counter have slowly taken up more and more of the pedestrian way that goes from one side to the other, so that it's difficult for two people to cross in opposite directions with luggage. But if you've made that and navigated it well, you make your way to security and Sometimes that line is so very long, and if you haven't been blessed to have gotten your pre-TSA approved um, approval to go through the speed line, you get to stand in the other line and watch and berate yourself for why you haven't made the effort and spent the $80 or whatever it is to get that on a permanent basis. And then I... Don't know if you've ever been in this spot, but I have where I've done the disrobing process, gotten through security, re-robing on the other side, 
on my way up the escalator and having neglected to look at the monitors before I walked in, I get upstairs and realize that I'm at gate number two, not gates four through ten that are in that part of the second floor, and I have to go back out and go through another security line where gates one, two, and three are, and stand in a room that was not built for the number of flights and crowds that we currently have, knowing that there is no seat anywhere and stand around until we can get on board. I know that Southern California is known for sunny days, but there have been times when all of that has occurred for me, and it's been on one of those days where we have either had the fog, the marine layer roll in, and we've been socked in, or it's actually been drizzling. And everything around here looks kind of dark and gray. And nothing seems like the bright Southern California that the songs speak of. And if you've gone through security twice, and disrobed twice, and re-robed, and forgotten your belt someplace, and you finally get on the plane and you sit down, you wait at the end of the tarmac for 15 planes to take off ahead of you, it comes with at least some little sense of relief when the pilot comes over the intercom and says, we've been approved for takeoff, and the plane takes that last revving of the engine, he releases the brakes, and you speed down the runway. I want to tell you that the part that I never, ever, ever grow weary of is the time after you've initially taken off and you've wondered, is the plane going to turn in the right direction so that I might be able to pick out my house from the sky and follow the the roads, and then realizing the clouds and the marine layer, I'm not going to see anything after we get off the ground more than 100 feet. When in the plane, it goes from being able to see all that's on the ground to see nothing because you're in the clouds. And then for about 10 to 15 seconds, the sun kind of flickers on the windows on both sides of the plane as you're getting to the top side of that cloud layer until finally you break through and all of the sudden the sky is blue, the sun is shining, and the top side of the clouds have this soft, appealing look as if you just want to roll in them. And if you didn't know that you were going to fall straight through if you tried that, it just is the thing that feels so wonderful about being on the other side of the clouds. Now, nothing beneath it has changed. Everything underneath the clouds still is the same. But it's fascinating to see a different perspective. I never grow weary of that. It is into that 
kind of place that I feel like Paul takes us in this passage in Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case you weren't listening very clearly, let me say it again, rejoice. That wasn't me doing that. That's Paul does that in the Scripture itself. He says, if you're not paying attention, I need to say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all. Don't be anxious about anything. But in all things, with thanksgiving, let your petitions be known to God. For God is near. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The emphasis is, I'm sure you've picked up both by the wonderful choices in song and in the beautiful uh, Advent reading. Speak about joy. It reminds me of something from my childhood. I, I have often prayed for others who have lost a family member to death that, that God would bring to their mind the best of memories so that the best of a person's life could be carried on, that the legacy of those good pieces would fill our thinking as we move into our future. Well, as you know, my dad passed away this last May. One of my best memories of my dad was when he had the opportunity on several occasions to lead music at a small church. It was not his vocation. I'm not even sure he was trained in it, but in some of the smaller churches that we attended, he was apparently either one of the more qualified or the only one willing, one of the two. My dad would get up and lead. And I remember very often hearing him lead a song that I thought was a children's song, but I never saw him lead it with kids. He always, always led it with adults. And I loved him doing that. It's a song that some of you would be familiar with. I'm not asking you to sing it with me, but it's the song that goes, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. Wow. Down in my heart. Got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart down in my heart to stay, and I'm so happy, so very happy, I have the love of Jesus in my heart, and I'm so happy, so very happy, I have the love of Jesus in my heart. Thank you for joining in, those that know it. There's something very powerful to me about that song, that the love of Jesus is supposed to make a difference. And the promise is that it does, that if 
that love is abiding within that it changes how I view what I face. I think one of the things that makes that such a powerful memory to me is that the song kind of lit up my dad's eyes. There's just like a twinkle in his eye when he would do it. And he, like some of you, knew 15 other verses to that thing. Each one got more complicated than the former one and harder to sing. And he'd add words that should never be added to that song. It just went on and on. But it would cause the corner of his mouth to just kind of perk up. And, and I really believe that there was something about joy that anchored my dad or at least reminded my dad of something profound in his faith journey that helped him to re-see what he was seeing in the world around him. One of those legacy moments that I hope somehow I continue to carry. I, I want to acknowledge right up front that it's not real easy sometimes to hold joy. There are, there are so many things that rob us of that, or maybe I should not be all that dramatic and just simply say that there's a lot of life that is incredibly sobering sometimes overwhelming, and it comes at us in so many different ways. And I'd like to talk about a few of those things right now because I think if we don't talk about some of those things, then this passage just becomes one of those very nice collection of verses in Scripture that feels good for a few moments and then kind of fades into the story of Advent or the story of Christianity. I'll, I'll tell you just some of the things that I think come to mind when I wrestle with whether joy is something I can live into or not. You probably have dozens of other things you could add, but let me kind of give some big categories. First is, I think, the past can become so big in our life that it's difficult to think of anything else. Sometimes it's past patterns. We're into a season right now where many of us will be with extended family members and all of us have a family history. Every one of us has a family history. And some of that history you're not wanting anybody else to know. And some of that family history comes to light when we get together during the holidays. And some of it's wonderful and some of it's hard. Some of it's trying to figure out in a big family meal who's going to sit with whom and who's going to be across the table from uncle, whoever it is that's in your family system. And do I need to position myself relatively close to that part of the table so that I can navigate or negotiate what is certainly going to unfold because it has so many other times? We don't control our family history, nor do we control uncle whoever. 
And yet we feel like we need to or have to or struggle with what we could do differently. And I can just feel the stomach acid in the room multiplying as we describe some of those things that take place. It's not just family history. Sometimes it's personal history. Personal history that casts a shadow over all things. And joy sometimes becomes a whitewash over that, never completely masking, never completely fixing, just holding it at bay long enough to go about doing whatever the next thing is that we need to do. I love during this time of the season to introduce to you new children's books. This is not a Christmas book, but it seems to fit so powerfully in this message. So I'd like to share with you the book called After the Fall. Sounds like a deep religious title, doesn't it? Ah. All about Adam and Eve and the story of creation and then after the fall. No, it's about Humpty Dumpty. So, <laughs> but maybe equally as profound. Now, I know it'd be nice. I just did not plan ahead well enough to put the pictures up on the big screen. I know you can't see them. And I'm going to have to describe a couple of these pictures because they're very essential for the storyline. This happens to be the big wall that Humpty Dumpty was on, very significant. Here's how it begins. My name is Humpty Dumpty. This was my favorite spot high up on the wall. I know it's an odd place for an egg to be, but I love to be close to the birds. Then one day, I fell. I'm sort of famous for that part of the story. Folks called it the Great Fall, which sounds a little grand, it was just an accident, but it changed my life. Fortunately, the king's men were able to put me back together again. Well, most of me. There were some parts that couldn't be healed with bandages and glue. And if you can't see in Humpty Dumpty's bedroom, he has bunk beds, and he has this aversion to climbing the ladder, so he sleeps on the floor down here. Aww. After that day, I became afraid of heights. I was so scared that it kept me from enjoying some of my favorite things, the cereals that you might find on the top shelf. I walked past the wall every day and I would think about climbing that ladder again. I really missed the birds and being high above the city, but I could never do it because I knew that accidents can happen. I eventually settled for watching birds from the ground. It wasn't the same, but it was better than nothing. Then one day, an idea flew by little paper airplane off to the side over here, inspired by that. 
Making, plan, making paper airplanes was harder than I thought. It was easy to get cuts and scratches, but day after day I kept trying and trying and trying until I got it right. This is his phenomenal airplane that he created. My plane was perfect and it flew like nothing could stop it. I hadn't felt that happy in a long time. It wasn't the same as being up in the sky with the birds, but it was close enough. Unfortunately, accidents happen. They always do. The plane flies over the wall. I almost walked away again. But then I thought about all the time I'd spent working on my plane and all the other things I'd missed. I decided I was going to climb that wall. But the higher I got, the more nervous I felt. I didn't want to admit it. I was terrified. I didn't look up. I didn't look down. I just kept climbing one step at a time until I was no longer afraid. Maybe now you won't think of me as that egg who was famous for falling because I learned how to fly. When I think of the past and how it holds us captive, I think of this scripture passage that calls us to be anxious for nothing but in all things, to pray. For many of us, that's not a one-time thing. It's to pray and take one step. Pray for enough strength for just one more rung. Having done that, oh God, help me with just one more step. And sometimes with the past, it's that kind of a process that moves us away from being held so tightly to the top of the wall again. Sometimes it's not the past, sometimes it's the future, the unknown the uncertainty, the rumination over next month's bills. Well, let's be real about this month's bills. Will there be enough? Do I have enough? I know I don't have enough. Worry about the uncertainty of what's about to come around the next bin. I was a fan of Dennis the Menace comic books as a little kid. And I remember reading over and over again, his parents would sometimes have this 
thought bubble or word bubble, I guess it was, that came off their head with S-I-G-H um, that was uh, the word sigh. And I read it and it was a sound I was not familiar with or a word that I didn't quite understand. I could tell they were a little exasperated. It wasn't until I got much older that I had a secretary who was much, much older than I was and she'd sit down in her chair at the desk and she'd sigh. And I heard the sigh, not just read the thought bubble, I heard it loud and clear. As the years have passed, I have heard myself every once in a while sigh. And I know that this isn't the only reason, but one of the reasons that we do that is that we hold our breath thinking that something is about to hurt, waiting for the pain. Settle down into our chair, not sure if that knee is going to give away, that backache is going to hurt, something's going to go wrong, and once we've settled in, we exhale. It's the waiting for the pain that creates the sigh, the uncertainty of the future, of what's about to happen. Am I going to be hurt again? I would like to invite you to hear once again Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. We're probably most familiar with the first half of the verse that says, I am the Alpha and Omega. This is Jesus, the, the, the Spirit speaking. I am the Alpha, Omega, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the one who was and is and is to come. That notion of being the one who was and is and is to come ought to give us some assurance. I heard this last week. A speaker, a wonderful pastor, a good, good man, he talked about some of his thoughts concerning the second coming. And the reason I bring that up is because he spoke about it in ways that did not lower anxiety at all. In fact, just the opposite. It just heightened this sense of anxiety about the future. I found, much like I said earlier about the stomach acid, just this apprehension. It was not the kind of good stuff about second coming of Christ that would be comforting. And I found myself saying, that's not how I want to live in that kind of state of anxious anticipation. And I felt like what was missing was that I live in the era of the resurrected Christ. I live in the era of the one who was and is. This is the Christ who lives among us, dwells with us, and has allowed us to make ourselves a dwelling place for the Spirit. I want to live in this era of resurrection power, not anxious about the future, but giving the future to the God who has been so faithful in the past that I can trust God with my future. So, the one who was, the one who is to come, I have to say as well, though, there are current circumstances that sometimes rob joy as well. the stuff that's happening right now in my journey. I'm bombarded daily 
with all of the things that it seems like I should be controlling but don't. News, advertisements, magazine, articles, all of the things that tell me all of the things that are going wrong. And the truth is, I have very little control over any of those things. I mean, I can, I can vote and I can handle my resources in a particular way, but the things that bombard all of us are, are so big. They are systems that are in place that they certainly affect us, but I don't control them. And I find myself ruminating, losing sleep over the contentiousness of things that are far out of my control. I do control my reactions to those things. I am so, so proud of our church, as Melissa talked about, being invited to be at the table of discussions of how we can respond to the needs that are right here near us and among us. Being invited to be a key center for relief efforts. Oh my goodness, what a privilege. And acknowledging, I, I don't know all of the circumstances that lead somebody to make the decisions they've made to leave bad conditions thinking that something must be better than what is. I, I've not made the decisions of those who are in power that make decisions about borders and, and how things unfold and how quickly or slowly they take place. I don't have control over any of those things. I do have the ability to respond and decide how I will react with what resources I do have, with what choices I can make. If I will pay attention to God's work in my life, maybe I can let go of all of those things that I have no control over. I'm not saying that it's inappropriate to debate some of those things. That's fine. But the extent to which we get so anxious and worried and create such conflict and chaos over things that we can do nothing about. For those who can, God bless you. We want to be a support if you are decision makers in those areas. That's fantastic. But I need to exhale and allow God to hold the things that God holds and own the things that I can own. This passage of Scripture that's our text says be anxious for nothing. That seems like pie in the sky, is that even possible? But Scripture gets very clear as to how we do that. Take all of those things that create that anxiety to God in prayer. Now, I want to be very clear that this isn't just an exercise where we go to God and we list all of the things that we're anxious about and just walk away and nothing's really changed. This calls us to be attentive to what's going on inside of us. I'd like to share a story briefly that's helped me in my thought process with this. We have a, a, a dog that 
we try and hide from everyone. We've had her for seven or eight years. Most of you have no idea we have a dog. I don't talk about her. I, I, I try and keep her out of sight when people come over to the house. She's actually a wonderful dog. She's more like the kind of traditional dog you think of than any dog I've ever had since childhood at all. I mean, she does all of the dog things. She digs holes. Nobody likes dogs to do that, but such a dog thing to do. She digs holes. She hides bones. She jumps up and up and up and up, and she doesn't care if she has mud on her paws. She'll just make paw prints all up and down your legs, and that's why we try and keep people away from her. She loves retrieving a tennis ball. She could do it endlessly. When I am outside with her, she brings the tennis ball to me, drops it at my feet, and just looks up at me, waiting for me to reach down and grab it. And the tail's going, and when I start to bend down to grab it, she just kind of crouches and starts backing up, and the feet start moving, ready for me to do something with that tennis ball. And I have to grab it pretty quickly, because if I don't move fast enough and she sees me going for the tennis ball, she starts running even before I throw it. And it's not been intentional, but many times I've hit her with a tennis ball, and it's <laughs> just because she's faster than I can throw. She grabs it, and she comes running back as fast as she can, drops it right in front of me, and wants to repeat this over and over again. She's so excited about it. The third, sometimes the fourth time, she'll come, and she won't drop the tennis ball. She's got it in her mouth. She's so proud that she has it in her mouth. I reach down to get it, but she doesn't let go. And she pulls away, and for some reason she thinks she's given me the tennis ball, and she takes off running. She gets about 10, 15 feet away, and it dawns on her, the ball's still in her mouth, and she turns around and races back at me. I confess that my prayers are so often like that last time. I come to God in prayer, and I might act like I'm dropping it with God. I might act like I'm turning it over to God, but all I've done is taken it and kind of stuck it in my back pocket, and I take off running. I know it's there because it's a little uncomfortable when I sit down and I feel it in my back pocket, and I go, oh, yeah, that thing. I even feel it sometimes as I'm walking. Sometimes there are so many things in my life, they filled up all my pockets, and I go to prayer, and it's an exercise, but not an exercise of faith. It's just an exercise. I'm not saying it's easy to drop it and hand it into God's grasp. But when I know that I'm not doing that well, I need to come back to God in prayer again. I just want to encourage you that this isn't a check-off thing in the Christian journey. This is Paul, in his enthusiasm, writing to a group of people and saying, so here, just listen. All of these things that keep you from your inheritance of joy, go to prayer, all of them. With thanksgiving, give them to God. God is near. And if all that does for you is empower you to take one single step on one rung, that's great. Go back and do it again. 
Here are all the things, Lord, that had me so anxious, the stuff in the past that I can't seem to let go of. It just kind of clouds all my thinking. The future causes me to get so anxious. I start ruminating all over the things that I should have said, didn't say, might say in the future. I don't know where the next resource is going to come from. Go again. Give me strength for one more step, Lord. Allow our petitions, step by step, to move us into the place of inheritance, the place of joy. I think it's one of the most crucial factors that the faith community refuses to wrestle with. What's terrible is that it robs you. It also is the worst advertisement of the community of faith. Not fake joy. Paul was in prison when he writes this. Paul was persecuted as he writes this to a community that's under Roman oppression and he says, I just want to tell you, there is joy. Let me say it again. There's joy even in the midst of the circumstances you are in. The invitation is to get in the plane and see the other side of the clouds. It doesn't make it all disappear. It's still there. But can God give us a new perspective that there is something larger than what seems and feels overwhelming to me in this moment? Prayer gets us into the place where we might see the blue sky, the sun shine, the soft side of the clouds, and recognize that we just haven't seen the whole story yet. Hope, peace, joy. The invitation to the table this morning is an invitation to allow God's Spirit to take you one more step toward the other side of the clouds. It is an invitation Christ offered to His disciples. He wasn't just acknowledging what he was about to face, he knew what the disciples were about to face. And he said, let me offer you me to be with you, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is yet to come. Oh Lord, these are your sacraments, your elements. May they become for us, Lord, your body and your blood. That they might be for us hope. That they might open up the way to our inheritance and joy. In this season of anticipation, Lord, could you give us a glimpse of something that's on the other side of the clouds.
So Lord, sanctify them to us that they might bring into our lives your hope, your strength, your spirit to dwell with us and in us. Amen.